Hi, I'm Devlin Camp. Thanks for joining me. Over on QueerSerial.com or on my Instagram at QueerSerial, you can explore the complete Queer Serial episode guide. You can also buy Queer History merch, explore my archive dives and behind the scenes of my documentary currently in production, and subscribe to listen to bonus episodes. If you subscribe to any of my bonus content through Spotify, Patreon, or Apple Podcasts, your subscription supports all of my ongoing LGBTQ history projects. Thank you so much. There are links to everything here in the episode notes or at QueerSerial.com. This is Season 5 of Queer Serial, a standalone miniseries. Heads up, this season features sensitive sexual content. These episodes detail the true story of a panic that swept Boise, Idaho in 1955. A panic that continues to spread and damage our communities today. Let me, let me try and flip it a different way and see if maybe this, this can help. In Arkansas, if you have pediatric cancer, and obviously we all want to protect children, I think we established that earlier. Whose guidelines do you no, follow? That's actually not at all what the state said. The state simply said that you cannot perform these procedures, and so parents should get another opinion that they, and children should want to have another opinion. But that's because not when you have cancer, it literally is, and particularly pediatric cancer, and having friends that have lost children sure. to pediatric cancer, having a four-year-old, I'm sure. I've got some bad news for you. Parents with children who have gender dysphoria have lost children. Florida is the latest state to ban transgender women from competing in women's sports at public high schools and colleges. The bill says birth certificates will be used as confirmation of one's biological sex. And we're gonna go based off biology, not based off ideology when we're doing sports. Girls are gonna play girls sports and boys are gonna play boys sports. That's what we're doing. I don't think that biological boys should be playing sports with biological girls. Uh, Governor Youngkin, look at me. I am a transgender man. Do you really think that the girls in my high school would feel comfortable sharing a restroom with me? It's simply saying, let those young people who are facing gender confusion and dysphoria, allow them to become adults and to make that decision. Allow a child to be a child. So here's where we have our, our crossroads. You've made the determination that protecting these children means not giving them access. And I'm asking you again, what are your qualifications to step in and say no. Well, these are irreversible decisions that these children at these young ages are making or that their They're parents are They're not making the decision. You're making it sound like a nine-year-old walks into a doctor's office and says, give me some testosterone. And the doctor goes, oh, thank God, because we're wanting to create an army of transgenders because we're crazy and they go right in like... Now, we passed a law to protect the children in Arkansas, and I think that's what is important. Reporter John Garrisey is still on the case in 1965, crashing in a hotel room in Boise, looking for anyone in town who will talk to him about what happened here 10 years ago. Few people are interested in reliving the lurid details of what became a modern witch hunt. Garrisey walks the downtown streets for pedestrians or storefront employees willing to chat. A store executive talks to Garrisey. 
They recall 1955. It was bad enough before, when all you had to do was be careful not to be seen with teenage boys. But after they arrested that pianist fellow and Larson, both of whom were charged with indecent acts against adults, well, I, let me tell you, every bachelor became jittery. I was a buyer then, so I had to travel a great deal. Everywhere I went, people started making jokes. I used to wear my school ring on the third finger of my right hand. Well, I had to stop that. I remember talking to a guy in Denver, a buyer from Salt Lake, a guy I had gotten to know quite well. And all of a sudden, he starts kidding me about Boise. And then he looks at my hand and says, with a goddamnest sarcastic smile, Hey, uh, I see you're wearing a ring these days. Boy, I felt like punching him in the nose. He had seen that ring ever since we first met, three years before. Well, anyway, that's the way it went. It got so bad that every time I left Boise on business, I was sure some dirty gossiper was spreading the word that I was going to see my boyfriend who had left Boise not to get arrested. Word is traveling fast in 1955, especially since the Time magazine piece hit the stands. A Harvard freshman from Boise, Byron Johnson, is also teased by his classmates. You're from Boise, where the boys are. The many men who escape from town, like the high school teacher and the theater actor, they follow the story in the national papers from their new homes in big cities like San Francisco. Meanwhile, in Boise, more accused homosexuals are secretly interrogated in the house on 16th Street as previous visitors to the house take the stand for judgment. I'm Devlin Camp, and this is Episode 4, Town Meeting, Adults Only. December 16, 1955, Benny Castle, the 51-year-old clothing store clerk, goes to court. He was among the first three arrested on Halloween night six weeks ago and charged with infamous crimes against nature. He's pleading guilty and is defended by J. Charles Blanton. Blanton turns and says to the court, Sensationalism in the local press has gone far afield and has caused fear to those who would themselves testify on behalf of Castle. Fear and hysteria has gripped the community, kindled by the press, Blanton says. The defendant, Benny Castle, takes the stand. He tells the story of his high school principal promising him a passing grade if he would engage in an act with him. It was Castle's first homosexual experience. Castle admits performing a similar act on a 16-year-old in the basement of the Boise men's clothing store where he worked. Prosecuting attorney Blaine Evans adds that another boy was involved too, a 17-year-old delinquent with a burglary felony charge, which was dismissed so he could join the army. That 17-year-old was William Harvey Baker, a.k.a. Tex Baker, who we discussed in last week's episode, Tex Baker was the 17-year-old who signed the second statement against the banker, Joe Moore. Joe Moore was the man accused in two statements, the other one of which had his name written in over Al Travelstead's scribbled-out name after Travelstead skipped town to Mexico. The other statement, signed by Tex Baker, was riddled with inconsistent details about his encounter with Moore and dates that conflicted with the other doctored accusation. In the Benny Castle case, Tex Baker's affidavit against Castle states that their encounter took place in Castle's car. But Castle denies this, on account of he doesn't even own a car. A witness takes the stand to attest to that fact. 
Blanton continues defending his client, Castle, explaining that the event with the 16-year-old at the clothing store didn't involve an exchange of money. And Castle needs medical help, he says, to overcome this. Dr. Cornell adds that Castle should have treatment in a hospital or a closely supervised home setting. A penal institution would do no good and would stimulate the desire, he says. I'm not in favor of it. Judge Merlin Young postponed sentencing to the same date as Brokaw, Moore, and Wilson, December 23rd. That same day, December 16th, 24-year-old Charles Pruitt also goes to court. He admits picking up guys in the park and comes to court with no lawyer. Judge Kolsch says, You're not required to answer any questions, but it would help me if you did. So Pruitt tells his story. He had his first homosexual experience in the orphanage at age seven. His father committed suicide when he was one, and he grew up in a children's home until he was 11, and then went back with his mother and abusive stepfather. He came to Boise in 1953 from Fort Worth, Texas after high school. He has an honorable discharge from the Air Force with no trouble or convictions. Pruitt's meetings with guys in Boise were accidental, not arranged, and there was no payment. He has all the so-called classical markings of a homosexual. And Pruitt is honest with the court. Very honest. Possibly to his own detriment. Judge Kolsch considers these events and also postpones Pruitt's sentencing to the same day as everyone else so far, December 23rd. Word spreads that sentencing is coming for many of the arrested perverts. The town is anxious, eager for punishment. A town hall is called for adults only at South Junior High School. 500 adults show up with torches and pitchforks. (laughs) Not really, but basically. A few speakers are scheduled to take the auditorium stage, including Jim Fowler, the boys' counselor at West Junior High School, young Boise lawyer Frank Church, who will one day become an Idaho Democratic senator, the penitentiary warden L.E. Clapp, and young Dr. Butler will also speak the doctor who recently arrived back in town from Europe and has been hired by the State Board of Health to perform psychiatric interviews with delinquent youths. Dr. Butler is frank with the townspeople. He says, Homosexuality is not a disease or illness. It's a symptom of character. He cites the Kinsey reports and explains that this is and always has been common among young adults for centuries. Butler says, The homosexual activity involving teenage boys is only a symptom of many difficulties facing youth in Boise. They got to exploring forbidden things, and a few of them became involved in Boise's closed homosexual society. There's a society? (gasps) No one will calm down. Citizens stand to demand the arrest of all the homosexuals. Dr. Butler remains patient. He says their hatred is misdirected toward homosexuals when it should be aimed specifically toward child molesters who sought the boys out or allowed the boys to be involved. We need to focus on creating paying jobs for those teens looking for money and good recreation for teens in general. Here in Boise, Dr. Butler says, when a boy gets to be 15 or 16, the sledding gets tough for him. You have to live closer with your child. You have to understand that there are these things in the world. You must take the realistic view that homosexuality is here and a little of it is probably in all of us. Go to work and build your community supports and forces. This is a big challenge, but it is up to you. The answer has to be in the preventative field because 
There is no hope of success in any kind of therapy. The parents are infuriated by Dr. Butler's statement. He wants them to be honest with their kids, talk about sexuality. They don't want to hear anything about facts or science or jobs or even prayer or doctors. They just want to get rid of these deviants. Warden Clapp from the penitentiary stands. He agrees with Dr. Butler to an extent, but he says psychiatric help for these men is a bit overboard. Many Mormon parents agree. The last thing most of them want to hear is that the city is going to force mental health services onto them. Communist brainwashing? No thank you. Warden Clapp says, Each case is a personal problem, and parents who should be close to their sons should be able to help. I am not sure that this entire burden should be carried by the taxpayers. Parents should handle their own individual problems. Each parent should make decisions in this matter for his children. Only when parents refuse to accept responsibility should the public enter the problem. Someone in the audience stands and asks the warden how homosexuals are treated in the penitentiary. Well, the warden says, you can be sure that we're certainly not going to turn our backs on them. (laughs) The lawyer, Frank Church, takes the mic. He says, we can't be the prosecutor and we can't determine the sentence of these people, but we can stop the gossip and rumors we unintentionally circulate. Rumors that can do a lot of damage. He pats Dr. Butler on the back. What we can do is to learn more about this problem and welcome expert advice. The 500 or so adults of Boise leave the meeting pissed off. This doctor, this outsider, has come to town from Europe to diagnose and blame them, and he doesn't even know them, even though he grew up Mormon in Utah. His fancy degree means nothing to them. They still want justice. Youth problems discussed at Boise mass meeting, the statesman reports. The homosexual activity involving teenage boys is only a symptom of many difficulties facing youth in Boise, Dr. John L. Butler told a mass meeting at South Junior High School. Butler, one of five speakers at the meeting, attended by 500 persons, urged the retention of a mental health team which can work with the community and diagnose and assist the community in solving the problem. What happened in Boise, Butler said, was that youngsters who had reached the age of revolt had formed a social system of their own. He said these youngsters, as they will, got to exploring forbidden things, and a few of them became involved with Boise's closed homosexual society. Warden L.E. Clapp of the Idaho Penitentiary went on to say that he did not believe a normal child would enter into homosexual activities of his own free will without being enticed by money or something else. Every report from the Statesman newspaper fuels the town's panic and hatred. Hundreds of people move away. There is a mass migration out of the Boise area. Mrs. Travelstead, going broke, sells the Howdy Partner Diner, their family's dance studio, and their house for 10% of their value. It's all she can get, given the open secret of her missing husband's gay shame. She gives away the family dog and packs up their things. She and the kids leave Boise for Tijuana to join her husband, Al Travelstead, in hiding. By treating the Travelsteads as outcasts, that's essentially what the people of Boise wanted 
The travel studs are tainted. They want them out. Most Boiseans see themselves as good, church-going, wholesome, patriotic, law-and-order citizens. They pledge allegiance to the flag, and they support McCarthy's hunt for homosexuals in the State Department. Intellectuals like Dr. Butler bringing science to town is an anti-American act to them. Boiseans see him as cynical when he says that homosexuality is here to stay. They see him as corrupt and overly permissive, and they don't think the doctor's ideas for solving this would work. Mental health and medicine is a communist plot. Mental health services aren't for towns like theirs, a perfect natural paradise of wholesome people, and, as Time magazine described them, a city of immaculate respectability. Now, a word from our sponsor. You can listen to the first four seasons of Queer Serial free wherever you're listening to this episode right now. Hear the story of American queer liberation from its roots in the 1920s all the way through to Stonewall and beyond. If you'd like to support my many ongoing LGBTQ history projects, like the Randy Wicker and Marsha P. Johnson archives and my documentary currently in production, you can subscribe to bonus episodes of Queer Serial. It's $2.99 a month to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, or if you subscribe for $3 a month, one cent more on Spotify or Patreon, you can also see my Queer History archive dives and behind the scenes of my documentary. That gets you everything I've ever posted on Patreon since the podcast started in 2017 and all of my bonus episodes, the queer serial spinoff stories, forgotten fairy tales, the White Knight Riot interviews, Mattachine meeting interviews, Randy Wicker Radio, etc, 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 every episode of everything I've ever made. And you can go ahead and see everything on that list in the episode guide at QueerSerial.com episodes. If you'd like to support my queer history work and get some gay merch for it, visit my new Etsy shop. I've got lots of podcast merch from throughout the series, lots of unique queer history related items that make cute gifts, like postcards from Mona's 1930s lesbian bar, featured in season two, some lovely mugs with rainbow maps that say queer history is world history. I have Marsha P. Johnson stickers with her own handwriting that says gay love always from a note she wrote to Randy that's in her archive that I've been processing at the LGBT Center here in New York. My Etsy also has other stickers that say drag is not a crime with a real photo of drag queens being arrested and also stickers that you can put in textbooks that lack queer history to warn future readers of that book. Lots of stickers and buttons and fun stuff like that. Etsy.com slash shop slash queer history uplift. There are links to all of this and the bonus episodes and everything in the episode notes here and on my Instagram at Queer Serial and at QueerSerial.com. Thank you all so much for your support. You've enabled me to do so much over the past six years. I'm so grateful. Okay, that's it. That's my ad. Enjoy act two of this episode. A decade after the gay panic in Boise, the reporter John Garrisey finds that not much has changed in Boise by the mid-60s. Mental health programs in Idaho are still underfunded in 1965, 
It seems, according to his research, that Idaho executives intentionally keep the state budget drained and new programs are cut off before they can begin. The powerful Idaho elite, men like the previously discussed Boise Gang, as Senator Taylor called them, who hang out at the Arid Club in Boise, these guys withhold progress on many fronts in order to keep their own profits coming in. For example, Garrisey looks into the private electricity organization, the Idaho Power Company. He finds that in 1965, Idaho Power Company hiked their prices outrageously high, abnormally so, compared to private electricity companies in other states. The federal government could offer the people an alternative, but that's been blocked too. And the people of Idaho are absolutely willing to pay the higher prices to that private company because they distrust the federal government so completely, which I think feels like an oxymoron for people who identify themselves as patriotic, but that's a farmer mentality so pervasive in places like Idaho. They want as little government involvement as possible. And Idaho Power Company not only has the people's support by default, it has allies. The governors of Idaho, Wyoming, Utah, Montana, Washington, and California all support Idaho Power Company. The reporter Garrisey finds that hydroelectric power could bring new options to the people and hundreds of jobs to Idaho. But Idaho Power Company keeps the possibility out, using their allies and lobbies in Washington. And they can do it right from home, sitting on the Boise River at the Arid Club. The guys are just a 20-minute walk from the state capitol and only 15 from Julia Davis Park. The greed of these elite, powerful men keeps new jobs from being created, so new people don't really come to Boise, or Idaho in general, and the communities languish. Idaho is one of the poorest states in mid-century America, which of course means the education system is terrible too, and teachers often leave to find better-paying jobs in other states. The problem becomes a cycle. Garrisey continues to dig. The reporter meets with a Boise executive and asks him about these issues. The guy shouts at Garrisey, Why should we bring in new industries? Start new industries and before you know it, you've got unions. And then you've got black men coming in. And then there's no end to it. Drugs, prostitution, juvenile delinquents. What the hell do you want new industry for? Garrisey says jobs. So there will be more taxes and better schools and better mental health programs. The exec says, Mental health, yeah, I know. So you can save those goddamn fairies you've been checking about all over town. I know. Well, we don't want fairies or mental health. We don't want Boise to change. It's grown too much as it is. Next thing you'll want is legalized gambling. By the time of this interview, 1965, Democrats are running on a pro-gambling platform in a desperate new attempt to bring jobs to the state through tourism and entertainment. Construction of casinos, hotels, and restaurants can help Boise thrive. And it would also create jobs for waiters and cooks and bring in people for farmers to feed. It would be huge. Garrisey continues on his search for answers. He sits with a wealthy lawyer in the lounge of Hillcrest Country Club, looking over the city of Boise, out to the mountains. The lawyer tells Garrisey, We like it just as it is, small and friendly. Isn't it nice when you can walk down the main street of the state capitol and recognize half the people you see? What good would more business do? The guy smiles and orders another round of drinks. 
When the people of this paradise that is Hillcrest Country Club overlooking the city talk to Garrisey about the concept of social progress, they disdainfully point to the gay panic as a terrible symptom of progress. Progress brings homosexuals, and then doctors coming in to fix our problems? That creates panic. Let's just brush this under the rug here so we don't waste any money on helping those faggots or those families in need. The day after the town hall, December 17, 1955, Dr. Butler is announced as the new head of Idaho's Division of Mental Health, effective December 27th. Boise is tense, and citizens continue to point fingers at one another. Crude jokes are all over town. Jokes about any man who stops by the Boise Public Library, you know, to use the bathroom. Jokes about the YMCA, or even the one the warden said at the adults-only town hall. That was a good one. No one can talk about sex seriously. It's not a topic for discussion. That would be over the line. The Boise Journal, clearly infuriated by the behavior of the town, criticizes the ongoing investigation. The whispering, gossip-tongued folks are busy with the most unfair campaign of smear that has ever been known in Idaho. The coarse mouths are rollicking in their filthy jokes, insidious slurs against all men are dropped into every conversation. The Boise Journal encourages the press to tell the full, true story of the men accused by other adults, not minors. The paper goes on, if we are going to publicize the dirty mess, why not tell it all? It is one thing for a boy 10, 12, or 14 years old to be victimized, but it is quite another for a young man, 18 or 20 years old, who knows what he is doing, to be soliciting business around bus stations and other places. While we are investigating and publishing names, let's get the facts and tell about those who were solicited while intoxicated or succumbed later to be blackmailed by these same grown men who are clothed with immunity. The pleas for calm are not heard. Governor Smiley wakes up Sunday night to a phone call. So does Mayor Edlison and Warden Clapp and the judges and many business leaders. It's a retired farmer named Forrest D. Turner. He's calling to suggest a plan to rehabilitate Boise's boys by putting them in camps to work and read the Bible. He wants to make his plan known to the public, too. The panic is getting out of control. Tips continue to flood the telephone lines at the police station. Sheriff Doc House follows up on any tip he deems a legitimate concern. The sheriff gets in his car and drives for West Point, New York, to question a new cadet who recently graduated from Boise High School. The following day, December 19, 1955, Willard Wilson's lawyer asks for a continuance of his case so Dr. Butler can evaluate Wilson for possible probation and treatment. Wilson, as Prosecutor Blaine Evans explains, is accused of going to a trailer in Boise for having a homosexual experience with a 14-year-old boy who has been involved with several other men. Willard Wilson is married with two kids and not known to have done this with any other boys. Warden Clapp takes the stand as the first witness. He explains that his prison is not a facility for treatment and that inmates resent homosexuals in there with them. 
He says the homosexuals in the pen are extremely nervous and difficult to treat. No kidding. That's why he thinks homosexuals should be separated from the other inmates. That's how he does it. Many other witnesses who work in parole and for the prison testify in agreement with Warden Clapp. Even a minister, who is a former social worker, tells the jury he agrees. Prison isn't the answer. Dr. Cornell appears again to explain that we must distinguish between the crimes of larceny and homosexuality for each case, not generalize as though they're the same thing. Judge Merlin Young does not delay Wilson's sentencing long enough for Dr. Butler to assess Wilson for treatment. But he does delay for the same judgment day as everyone else, four days away, December 23rd. That night, Boise PD issues an 11 p.m. curfew for youths 16 and under. Before curfew begins, accusers of the banker Joe Moore, 15-year-old Lee Gibson, whose statement originally accused Al Travelstead, and 17-year-old Tex Baker, who also accused Benny Castle, this pair and some of their friends get together at Tex's house. Tex is home from the army and asks his friends to come meet him. Tex Baker's father lies dead on the dining room floor. Next week, City Council seeks justice, Time Magazine returns, and verdicts are handed down. Stay tuned to hear me read some credits if you like. And in the meantime, you can visit QueerSerial.com or QueerSerial on Instagram for the complete series episode guide and lots of images and videos from the true history on this podcast. If you want bonus episodes featuring exclusive interviews with queer legends and spinoff stories from Queer Serial, you can now subscribe to get the full catalog of bonus episodes for $2.99 on Apple Podcasts. It's super easy. Just visit the Queer Serial show page on Apple Podcasts. You can also get all of those bonus episodes, plus Queer History archive dives and exclusive behind-the-scenes peeks into production on my documentary by subscribing to my Patreon now through Spotify. It's super easy. Just open Spotify and search Queer Serial Bonus Shows, and there's a whole feed of Queer Serial Bonus Shows. That Spotify feed will also give you access to everything on my Patreon. Or if you just want the bonus episodes, you can save a whole penny and subscribe on Apple Podcasts. By the way, the documentary I mentioned is basically a sequel project to Queer Serial. It's created by me and Jim Morrow at Viridian Coast Studios, and it's all about archiving Randy Wicker's gay forest gump of a life. And it's about his extended gay family, including Marsha P. Johnson, Sylvia Rivera, and so many more people whose names deserve to be written into our history. The Wicker Family documentary is very much a queer serial movie. You can help support my work archiving Randy and Marsha's materials with the LGBT Center Archives here in New York, an ongoing years-long process, and see behind the scenes of that project and its documentary at patreon.com slash queerserial. You can also support my work by shopping in my Etsy store, etsy.com slash shop slash queerhistoryuplift or just by subscribing to bonus episodes on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or Patreon. Every little bit of support helps. Okay, thanks for listening. Here are the credits. Resources for this series include John Garrisey's 1965 book, The Boys of Boise, Seth Randall's 2006 documentary, The Fall of 55, and Intimate Matters, A History of Sexuality in America by John D'Amelio and Estelle B. Friedman. Find more info at QueerSerial.com. 
To learn more about America's history of gay panics and their causes, listen to Queer Serial Season 1, Episode 4, The Lavender Scare. Music comes from Blue Dot Sessions. The theme song, It's Noisy Out in Boise, Idaho, is a 1949 song by the King's Jesters. Could that be more perfect for a Mattachine production? This show is entirely supported by subscribers on Patreon and by bonus episode subscribers on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. Just $2.99 a month. Thank you. Queer Serial is written, hosted, edited, produced, etc. by me, Devlin Camp. What a cool job. Back next week. Bye. hear that whistle blow to let them know we're on our way to Idaho. Hey there, fella, soon we'll be in Pocatello, then Sun Valley, according to Moran McNally. Tell the folks back home in shy, tell them to loo goodbye, and let's choo-choo-choo-choo-choo-choo to Idaho. Come on, let's go. Let's choo-choo-choo to Idaho. What a trip, it's terrific. On the Union Pacific, what a change from the covered wagon day. If those old 49ers had these up-to-date streamliners, they'd commute clear from Butte to Iowa. Lay my suits out, get my spurs and western boots out. If I'm going west today, might as well go all the way. Let's do, 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 In the playground of the nation Bet your snow boots Dress up in your Eskimo suits You can have your beach resorts I'll take good old winter sports And choo-choo-choo-choo-choo